I want to uh, begin today and probably next Sunday to address the subject of the implications of evolutionary ethics and uh, evolution, or evolutionary philosophy on the subject of ethics. Jesus, in John 3.12, said, I have spoken to you about earthly things and you do not believe, so how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus is addressing the totality of reality, not just the things that we see before us, but things that are invisible, things that are real, but are not set right before us in that kind of plain and obvious way that material things are. This week, as I was working on this, uh, Doug Wilson had a good blog post, and I want to quote a paragraph he had that I think uh, speaks to this issue of ethics and uh, how we think about the world we live in and recognizing again that ethics is in that category of things that are not material, things that are not explained by physical forces. And he wrote, this means that if we want maximum liberty for people who don't believe in Jesus, and liberty is one of those ethical concerns, then we will have to believe in Jesus. If there is no God, and if Christ did not come back from the dead, then the bipedal carbon unit that doesn't believe in Jesus is nothing more than 200 pounds of protoplasm with an average temperature of 98.6 and endowed by blind evolutionary processes with nothing in particular to speak of. Rights. In order to be rights at all, human rights have to be grounded in a reality that is completely out of the reach of our elected and appointed officials. And that means religion. For the best results, it needs to be the true religion. False ones let you down. So the question, as always, when we're dealing with ideas, is what difference does it make? Why are we taking the time to study evolution, what it has to say? Because it is the predominant worldview of our day. Not just of our day, really for the last century and a half. And those ideas have consequences that work work themselves out in our culture. What we believe always works itself out in our lives, in our families, and in our culture. So I would ask you today, look around you. Do you like what you see? There is a mixture of true and false beliefs that always bear some kind of fruit. And just as an example of a current event, uh, Pastor Ben Rossell from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Valparaiso, Florida, uh, CREC Church there, made this observation about one current event. He said, it is worth noting that this week we've seen lots of the same Christians post angry protest pieces against Target's bathroom policy, while at the same time posting a flood of recollections and favorite songs of a singer who rarely appeared in public except when wearing women's makeup and clothing. Now, it's one thing to have a guilty pleasure or to wish God's mercy on his soul, may he, 
But it's another to be blind to the utter inconsistency of condemning the first while praising the second. Why do you think we are in such a cultural gender fog? Who do you think taught us to feel so conflicted and then accepting of the sexual flavor of the day? How was the natural displaced by the unnatural in our hearts? You can't celebrate when the seeds are sown and then protest when the fruit appears. Think about it. In a Creation Research Institute article entitled Ethics and Evolution, uh, Greg uh, Kopel makes some helpful observations. Okay, in a Creation Research Institute article entitled Ethics and Evolution, um, Greg Cole makes some helpful observations. He says, one of the strongest evidences for the existence of God is man's unique moral nature. C.S. Lewis argues in Mere Christianity that there is a persistent moral law that represents the ethical foundation of all human cultures. In his popular defense of evolution, uh, in the book called The Blind Watchmaker, Richard Dawkins acknowledges that the biological biological world looks designed, but he asserts that this appearance is deceiving. The appearance of intelligent order is really the result of the workings, he says, of natural selection. One notable example of this challenge to the transcendent nature of morality comes in the book titled The Moral Animal, Why We Are the Way We Are, The New Science of Evolutionary Psychology by Robert Wright. Take this comment from Wright, for example. Human beings are a species splendid in their array of moral equipment, tragic in their propensity to misuse it, and pathetic in their constitutional ignorance of the misuse. So Wright reflects on the moral equipment randomly given to us by nature, and then he bemoans our immoral use of it with words like tragic and pathetic and misuse. He writes this, Go above and beyond the call of a smoothly functioning conscience, Help those who aren't likely to help you in return, and do so when nobody's watching. This is one way to be a truly moral animal. Now, it's almost as if there are two categories of morality. Nature's morality, and then some kind of a transcendent standard uh, that's used to judge nature's morality. So that we can evaluate whether it's being used properly or improperly? Is it being used or misused? But where did this transcendent standard of morality come from? It is precisely the higher moral law that needs explaining. If transcendent morality judges the morality that evolution is responsible for, then it can't itself be accounted for by evolution. What Darwinists can't do is give us a reason why we ought not simply copy nature and destroy those who are weak, unpleasant, costly, 
are just plain boring. If all moral options are legitimate, then it is legitimate for the strong to rule over the weak. No moral restraints protect the weak because moral restraints simply do not exist. Morality grounded in God does explain our hunger for justice. If we are created in his image, as the Bible says, if God himself is just, then that explains our moral urge, our moral hunger for justice. Every child is very quick to point out when something is not fair. We desire for a day of final reckoning when all the wrongs will be made right. When innocent suffering is finally redeemed. And when the guilty are punished and the righteous rewarded. This also explains our personal sense of dread. We feel guilty because we are guilty. We know deep down that we have offendedly offended a morally perfect being who has the legitimate authority and right to punish us. And we also know that we will have to answer for our own sins and crimes against God. In the end, we must accept one of two alternatives, an exclusive alternative. Either we live in a universe in which morality is a meaningless concept, and thus we are forever condemned to silence regarding any moral issue, who's to say, or moral rules exist, and they are transcendent, and we are therefore beholden to God, to a moral God who holds us accountable to that standard. There are no other choices. As Francis Schaeffer put it, these are not probability answers. These are the only answers. It is this or nothing. If one is certainly false, then the other is certainly true. And so I want us to consider Darwin's costly speculation. And he would acknowledge that it was speculation. His evolutionary speculation was a direct assault on the biblical doctrine of creation and thereby challenged the existence of a personal, transcendent, uh, the personal, transcendent, sovereign God of Christianity. <coughs> By undermining biblical creation, the theory of evolution also changed the course of philosophy, of science, and culture. Darwin was very well aware of this fact. In one of his early notebooks, he records the prophetic statement that his theory of evolution would affect the whole of metaphysics, now, that is, those things beyond the physical, the underlying principles, if you will, of every field of study. About Darwin, Darwin's book on the origin of species, remember that was published in 1859, Josiah Royce commented, with the one exception of Newton's Principia, that was Newton's book, no single book of empirical science has ever been of more importance to philosophy, not biology, to philosophy than this work of Darwin. Because you see, if Darwin is right about biology, that's rooted in this physical reality that we see. We can test, we can 
uh, evaluate if he's right about what he says, then the implications go way beyond biology. Darwin called men away from the common presupposition of a decreed mature creation of all things by a personal God. And he replaced this assumption, this presupposition, with that of evolution, and he altered, in in so doing, the entire direction and thrust of the next century, century and a half's uh, thinking. Historian Will Durant observed this about Darwin. Quote, it may well be that for posterity, his name will stand as a turning point in the intellectual development of our Western civilization. If he was right, men will have to date 1859 as, will date from 1859 the beginning of modern thought. Cornelius Van Til, a great Christian apologist, wrote this. The Bible requires men to believe that God exists apart from and above the world and that he, by his plan, controls whatever takes place in the world. Everything in the created universe, therefore, displays the fact, everything displays the fact that it is controlled by God, that it is what it is by virtue of the place it occupies in the plan of God, The objective evidence for the existence of God and for the comprehensive governance of the world by God is therefore so plain that he who runs may read. Men cannot get away from this evidence. They see it round about them. They see it within them. Their own constitution so clearly evinces the facts of God's creation of them and control over them that there is no man who can possibly escape observing it. If he is self-conscious at all, he is also God-conscious. No matter how men may try, they cannot hide from themselves the fact of their own createdness, whether men engage in inductive study with respect to the facts of nature about them or engage in analysis of their own self-consciousness. They are always face-to-face with God, their Maker. It appears then that two religious positions stand over against each other. The religion of humanistic autonomy and the religion of biblical Christianity. And each one accuses the other of idolatry. The Christian then must see this situation clearly. The implications are not just important, they are critical. If we get this wrong, we get it all wrong. If we get it right, we get it all right. The choice between evolution and creation is, at base, religious. The choice, then, nothing, nothing less at stake than the charge of worshiping the creature rather than the creator. The answer to origins weighs idolatry in balance. Jeremiah 10 Verse 11 and verse 15 says, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, these shall perish. They are vanity, a work of delusion. So, the question of ethics. Ethics, just to remind you the definition, is just the standard of right and wrong. Good and evil. 
Is it true, as, as Dostoevsky mused in his book, Brothers Karamazov, that if God doesn't exist, anything goes? Can we lead moral lives without recourse to the hereafter and a spiritual being who may or may not exist? Can we construct an ethical system without that? Scottish philosopher David Hume offered us the naturalistic fallacy. He says this, ought cannot be derived from it. We can't just say, well, that's the way it is, or everybody does it that way. That's what is, therefore it ought to be. He said you cannot derive ought from is. You can't just draw that conclusion. G.K. Chesterton, in his essay, Darwinism, Morality, and the Tiger, said Darwinism can be used to back up two mad moralities, but it cannot be used to back up a single sane one. The kinship and competition of all living creatures can be used as a reason for being insanely cruel or insanely sentimental, but not for a healthy love of animals. That you and a tiger are one may be a reason for being tender to a tiger, or it may be a reason for being cruel as the being for being cruel as the tiger. It is one way to train the tiger to imitate you. It is a shorter way to imitate the tiger, but in neither case does evolution tell you how to treat a tiger reasonably, that is, to admire his stripes while avoiding his claws. If you want to treat a tiger reasonably, you must go back to the Garden of Eden, for the obstinate reminder continues to recur. Only the supernaturalist has taken a sane view of nature. Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, argued for the elimination of human weeds. I'm glad to hear that she didn't make it onto the new $20 bill this week. Came close. Here's what she said. She argued for the elimination of human weeds, quote, for the cessation of charity, for the segregation of morons, misfits, and maladjusted, and for the sterilization of genetically inferior races. If evolution is true, which it isn't, and if evolution, evolutionary progress is a coherent concept, which it isn't either, then how is it possible to escape the implication that one race of men can progress faster depending on environment, than another race of men. That is what Darwin taught. Survival of the fittest presupposes another category, and that is the category of the unfit. And the ramifications of that are many. Survival of the fittest, excuse me, if evolution has not stopped, what a priori, that is upfront scientific reason, can be given based on natural selection that would require all human races to grow into the same new species or to do so at the same rate? I mean, there's branches on this tree going in different directions. If evolution has stopped, why should it have done so? You may not like it. 
And it certainly offends liberal sensibilities. But I'd like someone to tell me why a blind process like natural selection cares about your liberal sensibilities. Or the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mass murder, mass murderer Jeffrey Dahmer, before his death, considered by many to be one of the most notorious killers of all times, made the following comment on a Dateline NBC program on November the 29th, 1994. Quote, If a person doesn't think that there is a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought, anyway. I always believed the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from the slime. Then we died. You know, that was it. There's nothing. And I have since come to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly God. And I believe that I as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him. Evolutionary thought, permeating a culture, will inevitably lead to a magnification of the effects of sin in one form or another. For one thing, its weakness, it weakens the shared cultural restraints that arise out of a commonly adhered to basis for morality. If we are all accountable to the biblical God who made, who made us and who owns us and everything else, then it makes sense to speak of moral absolutes, the unchanging rules of an unchanging God. In a consistent evolutionary worldview, there can be no unchanging rules. And there is only what is expedient for the society or for the individual in the moment. And there is no distinction in kind between people and animals, nor ultimately between people and grass, or even rocks. Thus, Stalin is said to have claimed that killing a million people was no different than mowing the lawn. This is chillingly consistent with a materialist view. Matter is all there is, and we are just evolved arrangements of atoms. All this does not deny the possibility of moral behavior by evolutionists or immoral behavior by Christians. But because amorality or immorality is logically consistent with evolution and inconsistent with biblical Christianity, an evolutionary worldview gives a much more fertile ground for the exhibition of the sin nature in all of its aspects. There's no corrective. Yet, who's to say? Well, if you're a Christian, you say the Bible is to say, what I just did was sin, what I did was wrong, I was wrong. I need to change, I need to repent. But where does that come from? If there is no God. In his new book, How to Be an Atheist, uh, by Mitch Stokes, which I would highly recommend. Uh, Mitch is a professor at New St. Andrews College 
and a very well-educated uh, man, and I really appreciate his writing. He's, he, in his book, he writes, uh, he thinks Duke University philosopher of science, Alexander Rosenberg, gets it right in his book, titled The Atheist Guide to Reality, when he credits philosopher David Hume with helping him to answer the questions that kept him up at night. Rosenberg wrote this, he said, It took a few years, but by reading David Hume, I was able to figure out the mistake preventing science from satisfying me. The mistake, as Hume showed so powerfully, was to think that there is any more to reality than the laws of nature that science discovers. Stokes then observes this. But once Hume showed Rosenberg that science tells us all there is, the pieces of his atheistic worldview fell into place. So science really had given him the correct answers, but it took some time for Rosenberg to accept them. Here are some of the answers science gives. Here's what Rosenberg says. Here are the questions. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there free will? Not a chance. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? Because it makes you feel better than being immoral. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like forbidden, permissible, or something obligatory? Anything goes. Stokes concludes, Many of these answers are usually resisted by even the most hard-nosed atheists. But I agree with Rosenberg. I think he gets the right naturalistic answers. We disagree, however, about whether the naturalistic answers are right. <coughs> now, let me give an example. An example of racism. Progressives have a real dilemma here because they want to embrace evolution completely as absolute uh, fundamental doctrine. It is the foundation of their world, but it has these implications that are troubling. The late famous evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould wrote that the sin of racism increased by, quote, orders of magnitude due to Darwin's work being used as justification. Anti-racist Darwinists, including Gould, have complained when such things are brought up, claiming that this increase in racism was due to a, quote, misuse of Darwinism. But it was, in fact, logically consistent with Darwin's premises. Gould, despite his evolutionary materialism, was still a person created in God's image, with a God-given conscience, as well as having been raised in a culture founded on Judeo-Christian morality. 
He would have condemned the actions of Hitler as immoral, perhaps felt more keenly because he himself was a Jew. But his materialism could not provide any rational basis for doing so. Hitler might reply, by what standard? I am doing what is best for the evolutionary struggle between my race and yours, consistent with my belief in evolution. Goring actually said at the Nuremberg trials that the Nazis did nothing wrong according to their own laws and were on trial only because they lost. Rebutting this, Prosecutor Jackson invoked a, quote, universal law. But this, is, this only has meaning if there is a creator lawgiver. Thus, given, the large enough, given a large enough group of people who share the Darwinian worldview, especially given a culture in which a small group of convinced Darwinists has the power to impose their will on the population, we will see more immoral behavior and even atrocities, what we've seen recently with the Planned Parenthood videos. Who got arrested on that one? The 20th century of Stalin, Hitler, Mao, and Pol Pot made this clear. Hitler made his death to evolution abundantly clear, and the ideology of the other three is also, was also firmly based on the notion of materialism, which means by definition that everything just evolved. Millions and millions of people have been killed, have been murdered, mostly by their own governments, in the name of evolutionary-inspired ideologies that in all the wars of recorded history put together, religious or otherwise. So, let's consider Darwin's fruit. As important as his book on the origin of species was to science, its impact was equally felt on the field of ethics where it produced the groundwork for a new belief system that shunned divine creation for Darwinian natural selection. The ripple effect was almost immediate. Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, the father of modern eugenics, which is selective breeding, argued for the practice of artificial selection. Natural selection wasn't getting things done fast enough, so we need to actually breed people, like we breed animals. We need to get the, the show on the road, if you will. Weeding out the unfit of the human race, and this only a few years after The Origin of Species was published in 1859. I want to remind you again, this is, not, this is not just a history lesson here. If your kids are in any public university, they're being taught this as truth. And the implications will play out if they buy it, and many of them have. If they buy it, it will play out in their lives, in their families, in your grandchildren, and in the world. So this is not just theory. This has radical implications to you and your family for many generations to come. 
Germany, Austria was especially fascinated with the ethical connotations of Darwin's ideas and its intelligentsia quickly integrated. Sometimes you might wonder, if you look at World War II and you look at what happened with the Nazis and Jews, you know, how could that happen? That couldn't happen here, could it? Well, number one, it is happening here in the abortion mills. And yes, it could. And the way it happens is ideas take root and they become the norm and the standard. Things you used to believe in the Bible are now labeled as hatred. There are people calling for you to go to jail because you are abusing your children by teaching them that Darwin is not true. And I I don't mean some obscure people. It's people like Richard Dawkins, best-selling author, talk show uh, favorite, noted scientist calling for laws that would find you guilty of child abuse for having your children at church today. The result was that 20 years after the debut of On the Origin of Species, there was a force behind a growing eugenics movement. And in, 1880, in an 1880 essay, German zoologist Robbie Kostman proclaimed this, The Darwinian worldview must look upon the present sentimental conception of the value of the life of a human individual as an overestimate completely hindering the progress of humanity. The human state also, like every animal community of individuals, must reach an even higher level of perfection if the possibility exists in it through the destruction of the less well-endowed individual for the more (laughs) excellently endowed to win space for the expansion of its progeny. The state only has an interest in preserving the more excellent life at the expense of the less excellent. Now keep in mind there's going to be a bureaucrat somewhere deciding who's excellent and who isn't. By the turn of the century, declarations like Kostman's were a common part of any German intellectual vocabulary. Delivered dramatically, they often took on characteristics similar to those of the biologist Arnold Dodel, who wrote in 1904, the new worldview actually rests on the theory of evolution. On it, we have to construct a new ethics. All values will be re-evaluated. Ernst Haeckel was the most renowned German Darwinist. Many of his books went through several reprintings and perhaps was its most passionate defender, stressing that natural selection should be applied to humans. He argued for its, ex- its extension to all areas of life. He and his fellow social Darwinists vehemently opposed any belief system that advocated the existence of the soul, Instead, holding that man had no free will, biology dictated everything, including morals. And as a result, notions of good and bad were shattered. Under the social Darwinist model, whatever facilitated the biological improvement of the human race was good. Anything that hampered its development, evil. As eugenics arguments gained traction, groups like the Society for Race Hygiene were formed to disseminate 
Darwin's ideas and often ended up advocating artificial selection. Most eugenics arguments focused on how to keep the weaker elements of society, the, the disabled, the mentally retarded, repeat criminals and alcoholics from reproducing because those were all considered to be hereditary traits. Only by purifying the higher evolved, the social Darwinist argued, could the human race properly evolve. Of course, the white German was considered to be the most evolved. As a result, most eugenicists had a harsh view of other races, believing them to be a less evolved form of humanity. Many argued that other ethnicities, Aborigines, Native Americans, Blacks, East Asians were in fact closer to the ape than to their level of human. Hankel explained in The Natural History of Creation, his book, quote, between the most highly developed animal soul and the least developed human soul, there exists only a small quantitative difference, but no qualitative difference. The social Darwinists had turned the traditional idea of the sanctity of life upside down. As bold and brash as the social Darwinists were in their rhetoric, they were less certain on how to execute their proposals. While some argued for compulsory sterilization of the quote unfit, others simply maintained that the weaker elements should be encouraged to refrain from reproducing. Darwinists were equally torn on topics such as war and abortion, some contending that they disproportionately reduced the able-bodied population, while others believed them to be effective assistance to the evolutionary process. The one thing all social Darwinists agreed on was whether was that whatever aided the fit and suppressed the unfit was moral and proper. Into this environment stepped Austrian-born Hitler, writing in Mein Kampf in 1925, quote, A stronger race will supplant the weaker, since the drive for life in its final form will decimate every ridiculous fetter of the so-called humanness of individuals in order to make place for the humanness of nature, which destroys the weak to make place for the strong. Darwin himself wrote that his views did not provide any objective, transcendent foundation for morality. And I'll close with this quote from Darwin. A man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or of a future existence with retribution and reward, can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest, or which seem to him the best ones. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy upon us and upon these false ideas that have gone forth to oppose you, to deny the truth, to refuse to worship and serve the Creator. Father, have mercy upon us as your people. Help us to be faithful to, to
think clearly about this world and about who we are, about why we're here. Help us today to remember these things and be all the more diligent to pursue instructing our children and our grandchildren in your truth. Father, we pray that you grant us protection as well as faithfulness in the midst of this darkness. We pray your blessings now as we prepare for worship. In Jesus' name, amen.